You are listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the Employee Safety Podcast. I'm Peter Steinfeld. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so I invited Dr. Tracy Brower to the show to talk about the sociology of work and the importance of psychological safety in the workplace. Tracy earned a PhD in sociology, and her area of expertise is work-life fulfillment and happiness. She's the author of two books, The Secret to Happiness at Work and Bring Work to Life by Bringing Life to Work. Tracy's also an award-winning speaker and a contributor to Forbes, Fast Company, TEDx, and The Wall Street Journal. She currently serves as the Vice President of Workplace Insights with the Applied Research and Consulting Group at Steelcase, the furniture manufacturing company. In today's episode, Tracy talks about the science behind how people interact and engage at work, as well as specific programs and cultural shifts that organizations can implement to support the mental health of their employees. Let's jump in. Tracy, you studied the sociology of work throughout your career, so I know you have strong perspective on it, but can you provide some background on that and perhaps talk about why it's an important concept for organizations to understand? Sociology is such an exciting scientific study of people, and the sociology of work is how people affect their work and how the work affects them back. So it really gets at sort of the human component of work and workplace and the work experience. And there's really wonderful data about what people need, uh, steel cases matter of fact, has done some work on collecting data about people's expectations. And they have to do with really needing a sense of safety and the sense of belonging and the ability to productive and have a sense of comfort and control in the work environment. So there's just a lot of data around sociology and the sociology of work. And part of that is around psychological safety as well, which I know we'll get into, but that is about people really feeling safe to bring their whole selves to the workplace. And then in your experience, what does a psychologically safe work environment look like? Yeah, this is all about feeling like we're respected, really acknowledging differences between people, having really strong team bonds where we feel a sense of that we're known, that we're appreciated, that we can bring whoever we are to the workplace, that we feel like our teammates will back us up, that we feel like we can trust others and that we trust them. And so all of that is about psychological safety, but there's some really beautiful research on this as well. The research suggests that when we feel like we can bring our whole selves to work, when we feel like we can bring all of who we are, we tend to perform better, but we also tend to have better mental health. There's also a beautiful set of data that talks about a concept called PPR, which is perceived partner responsiveness. And that is about our partners in life, um, as in romantic partners, but it's also about the partnership that we experience with colleagues. And it's actually linked to morbidity and physical health. And it has to do with three things. It has to do with the fact that we feel known 
that we feel understood. It has to do with feeling validated, like, okay, not only do you know me and understand me, but you're, you're cool with me and you kind of get me and you validate me. And then it also has to do with caring, like when compassion kicks in. So it's feeling known, it's feeling validated, and it's feeling like others have a sense of care. So that concept of PPR, that data around PPR, that perceived responsiveness by the people around us is also a really important concept for psychological safety. Generally speaking, when did this become a a thing, for lack of a better word? Because it wasn't Mm -hmm. always a thing. (laughs) Many years ago, it's like, I don't want to hear about your your personal self. Just come to work and do your job. So when did this really start becoming a thing? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, interestingly, Amy Edmondson at Harvard was one of the first people to posit the idea of psychological safety. And in my one of my very first jobs out of college, she was doing fellowship work with uh, the company that I was with at the time. So the concept has been around for, oh my gosh, like 20 years, but it's only just now become more popular. But more importantly, the awareness of them, our ability to talk about them, really sort of understanding of how important they are has really become more of a thing prior to the pandemic and then significantly through the pandemic. There's some really great research that looks at mental health and social isolation. And there was a really great study by Qualtrics a while ago that said that something like 75% of people were feeling socially isolated. And that was absolutely correlated with working away from their colleagues. So there are wonderful things about remote work, but one of the things that we struggle with is a sense of more social isolation with remote work. And so that pandemic experience, that distance experience has really exacerbated some of the psychological safety and the elements of proximity and has exacerbated mental health issues. And therefore, well-being has become increasingly part of our discussion. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, how can organizations benefit from creating a positive workplace that really prioritizes mental health and well-being? Oh my gosh, the benefits are really incredible. And there's been some really great research on this as well. One of the elements is looking at leaders who are more empathetic. So when leaders are more empathetic, people report greater mental health and emotional well-being. And so therefore they can contribute more fully. There's also some great research on leader empathy that suggests that when people perceive empathy from leaders, they tend to be more productive, they tend to be more engaged, they tend to be more innovative, they are more likely to be retained. And so there's really, really a lot of research on how important it is that we attend to this. There's also tons of research on joy and happiness. And when we are happier, we have better physical health, we're more likely to be productive, we're more likely to perform better, we're more likely to stay with our current organization. And that operates actually at the country level as well. So if we doubt it at the company level, we can absolutely embrace it, knowing that it operates at multiple levels. When countries' citizens are happier, they tend to have greater GDP, greater educational attainment, and greater physical health. So there's this really important relationship between how people are feeling cognitively, emotionally, physically, and the way that they're able to bring their best to their work and their health and well-being, as well as the way they're able to contribute to the organization. So it's really a win-win. Is there any more data about how psychological safety affects people in organizations? Yeah, actually, there's a really great logic train that I love. It's when we feel greater levels of psychological safety, we feel more able to take risks because we know that others have our backs. 
when we take risks, we're able to innovate more. We're able to think differently, think outside the proverbial box, as they say. But that innovation drives growth for organizations. So psychological safety has this really great connection from psychological safety to more risk taking, to better innovation, to growth over time for companies. Well, to make that actionable, what are some specific things an organization can do to create a happier, more psychologically safe environment for their employees? Yeah, this is this is really cool because there are so many right answers here. There's a beautiful concept of demand and capacity by a sociologist called Patricia Voidanoff. And we feel a different sense of capacity to deal with things and we perceive our demands differently based on the support systems around us. So as organizations are thinking about actionable ways to address this, they can think about how they build people's capacity and how they reduce potentially demand. And so some of the ways that we do that are by offering apps for mental health or offering access to things like care.com, which helps people find care because caregiving has increased so much for loved ones, for friends, for family, not just for children. Even pet insurance is something that can be a support system. The other thing that's really great as we think about support systems is development opportunities and growth opportunities. The opportunity for people to get coaching, for them to feel like they have a mentor. There are some companies doing some wonderful things with affiliation groups because a big part of our support system is feeling like we have great relationships with others. So the, you know, new parents who aren't getting any sleep affiliation, (laughs) right? The people who have elder care challenges or the people who have, I don't know, a new puppy, right? Like you can think of a million different kinds of affiliation groups in addition to the ones that we know lots of us are already aware of. The other thing we can do is provide support for tuition reimbursement. There's an interesting company that's providing stipends for childcare for people knowing that they're home and they need more care for children. And then the other thing, just to think broadly, is biophilia, right? Like elements of nature, elements of the natural environment in our work environments can be extraordinarily nourishing. So the takeaway message is that there are multiple right answers to help people have this sense of well-being and to nourish them in multiple ways, physically, mentally, emotionally. How do you talk to people about where to draw the line? Because clearly you could take this to the nth degree and it can get out of control. So I could see someone that's maybe a bit of a curmudgeon saying, yeah, if you give something, then you got to keep going and going and going. Where is it okay to draw the line? And I I know it's not going to be the same for every organization. So generally speaking. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's all about the Goldilocks rule. As much as necessary, as little as possible. Mm. So, I mean, do as much as necessary and do what really matters to your people. Like if you've got a preponderance of, I don't know, younger generations, they may prefer childcare oriented kinds of benefits. Or if you have a preponderance of different kinds of demographics, you might think about that. The other thing to consider, I think that's really important, is the business case for some of these. So this isn't just about kind of fluffy stuff that we're giving people for no return. When we start with people, when we do the right thing for people, we absolutely get business results and business outcomes. So think about these not as costs, but as investments. The other thing I think we need to think about from a business standpoint is the extent to which people use some of these benefits. Like our research suggests that many of these benefits get very little use. Mm -hmm. Message they send is huge, right? Like you may have a handful of employees who are using pet insurance, 
But the fact that you offer it sends a message that you care and that there are multiple ways that you're seeking to support people. So sometimes the benefit is in offering it and you may not have to pay that much for it on the other side. Well, speaking of messaging, how do you message this internally considering the different generations in an organization? You may have younger workers who are like, I, you have to offer this to me for me to stay. And older workers are like, I got along just fine. I struggled through it when I had my first or second or third child, and I only got a day off or <laughs> whatever it is. So how do you, how do you manage that messaging internally? I think it's all about connecting it to the business and connecting it to the values and the culture of the organization. So you're not offering supports for well-being specifically because of a certain generation or specific age group or specific life stage. You care about all of your workers and lots of workers have different needs across the life stage, but you do want to have a culture where you value people, a culture where you're embracing psychological safety, a culture where people can do their best. And you recognize as an organization and as a leadership group that there are lots of different ways that people will need those supports, lots of different solutions and approaches to work life that people have. So you want to provide a suite of services that people can pull from based on their unique kind of life stage and life circumstance. So I think the messaging has to do with culture, values, and the importance of the people to the business. I think it has to do with the acknowledging diversity in terms of work life and acknowledging a range of solutions for people to tap into it based on their diverse life stage or situation. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it, the overarching message should be, we can't think of everything that could be concerning our workers, but here are things that we are doing and hopefully, hopefully that should show you that we care. So come to us if there's something else that you're concerned about. Yeah, when you were 25 and having your first kid, we didn't have anything in place. But now that you're 60 and you're concerned about these things at that stage in your life, and we don't have a program for that, come to us. It's okay. Like, let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's really interesting is as we think about psychological safety, as we think about a culture of deep respect for people, the question we can ask is what matters to you? Because that's a way to really acknowledge and understand people in their unique situation. And it helps inform what could we and should we be offering? So generation tends to be something we can overgeneralize. Oh, those boomers, oh, those, <laughs> oh, those millennials, right? Which is really less helpful, right? The differences between individuals are more meaningful than the differences between overgeneralized groups. However, life stage is a great way to think about the different needs. And at different life stages, people have different needs from their work experience. We all have all the needs, but our priority tends to be different. So when we're early in our life stage, right, pre-kids, building our careers, you know, maybe we won't have kids someday, but we're still kind of early in our growth cycle. We want a work experience that helps us connect and learn and build social capital and have mentors and visibility that helps us grow our career. Mid-career, if we've got kids, we want to have a work experience that absolutely supports our performance. So we can get in, we can perform, we can get out and do the daycare dash at five. And late stage, we tend to be really interested in leaving a legacy and sharing what we know in being part of organizational memory. All of those things are important across the life stages, but the priority at each of those life stages tends to be something that's fairly predictable. So that's something else to think about as well, is kind of meeting people where they are. 
based on life stage, based on their emerging work needs, based on their shifting expectations, based on the pandemic. And that overall sends a message that we care, we're listening, we want to hear your input, we want your voice about what matters most. So all that being said, do you think this trend toward workplace happiness is just a moment in time and only temporary in the response to things like the great resignation and similar challenges, or is it here to stay? I think this is the $6 million question. I <laughs> did some research with a number of HR uh, senior leaders, and I, I asked the exact question, is this a blip or is this something that we can count on as a trend? And their belief is that this is a trend, that this will go on for the conceivable future. Part of the reason is that if you talk to smart economists, our talent revolution is not going away anytime soon. It is significantly driven by demographics. And so we are going to be in this talent crunch for no less than five years, according to many of the economists that I've been paying attention to. You may, you may be paying attention to different economists. That's cool too. But in general, we know the talent revolution is here to stay for a good while. And the other thing that we know is that when we attend to the well-being of people, we see this payoff for the business. So I like to say you can do it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, right? Like you can do it for really good reasons. We care about people. We respect people. We want to treat people as whole individuals. Or maybe you just care about the business benefits and getting the result for goodness sake. And then it's a good idea too. So I think it's here to stay. I think it's a trend that will last. And I think that it has enough payoffs for both people and business that it will be something that remains central and remains strategic for business. Do you think these kinds of cultural shifts help employees avoid burnout? Yes. Oh, this is so interesting, right? Burnout has been absolutely on the rise. And burnout is typically the result of a few things. When people feel trapped and so don't see a path forward, when they feel cynical and negative about what's going on around them, and when they don't feel capable of moving forward. This is interesting too. Burnout tends to occur most when we're doing repetitive tasks that require a lot of our brain power. So if you're doing a repetitive task that you can kind of check yourself out on it, it's actually less burnout producing than if it requires lots and lots of attention. So think about doing presentations or doing training or interacting with customers and doing the same presentation in a fresh way over and over again, right? Burnout can be really eased when we give people variety in their work, when we give them opportunities for growth. So variety enters into less repetitiveness of tasks. Growth opportunities say, oh my gosh, I'm not stagnated. There's a next place I can go that's pretty cool. Burnout is eased when people feel validated, like they're making a contribution and somebody's recognizing it. Burnout is eased when we give people more control over their schedule, more flexibility, more choice. There are lots of ways that we can ease burnout. And I think part of the magic is really understanding that we're even facing it in the first place. The last thing I would say about burnout is that it can also be eased by teams that feel bonded together. Like sometimes we assume that the social stuff is best for bonding, right? Go to the escape room or do the virtual Zoom happy hour or do the, I don't know, rock climbing or whatever you're going to do on a social basis. But in reality, the best bonding comes when we roll up sleeves together, when we're challenged together, when we're doing a task together. 
because we have to sort of think in new ways. We have to think in more complex ways that requires the skills of everybody at the table. And so that bonding is also helpful for burnout because we feel that line of sight to the work we're doing with others. We feel like our work matters and we feel like it's contributing to something bigger than ourselves. Do you think it's going to be important in the future to get employees to get back in the office sometimes for their psychological well-being? And if so, how do you counsel managers to encourage people to come in, but also encourage the workers themselves to want to come in. It's a bi-directional thing. Yeah, it's so bi-directional. You know, I really think that we need to see each other and that we do need to work in the office sometimes. And maybe that makes me a dinosaur. I push back myself <laughs> and I say, you know, maybe the world really is going to all remote all the time. And I think lots of remote can be a good thing. But what I worry about is that we don't even realize what we're missing, right? Like we're going to, we're going to be so remote and we're going to look up from our laptops in two years and we're going to say, oh my gosh, we've lost reciprocity. We've lost the ability to relate to each other as much. We've lost a social norm toward connecting in really inconsequential ways. There's some great data that those inconsequential connections are actually really important to our sense of community. That interaction with the barista, that interaction with the person at the dry cleaner, that interaction with the person at Target. And we can remove a lot of friction from our lives by removing some of those interactions. But ultimately, we want to be members of a community where we talk to each other, where we're aware of each other, where we're plugged into each other, even at those more superficial conversational levels. Work is fundamentally social. Whether we're an introvert or an extrovert, we absolutely need connection. And work is one of the fundamental ways that we get connection. 75% of our friends we tend to make at work. 82% come from colleges and high school experiences. But we make lots of our friends from work. We feel a sense of identity from our work. Work is a place that we have the opportunity to make contributions, express our talents, contribute to our communities. So I think it is going to be important that we still have this face-to-face, -face, right? Like we can read each other. We can get familiar with each other. We can, we can have those moments in the hallway or those moments in the cafeteria where we get things done more efficiently, where we feel like people are seeing us and recognizing us and we're seeing and recognizing them. Those are fundamental to our humanity and work will still be an important venue where those, are, where those needs are met. Yeah, I worry about this most for younger workers. They seem to be most, I guess you could say, they, they believe that they can really stay home and they don't have to go to the office for what, I guess, just through lack of experience, but they're the ones most in need of being exposed to everyone else at the office. So how do you counsel that? Yeah, right. Like a lot of what we learn, we learn from the ambient environment, right? We run into the person in the cafeteria and we build our social capital and our social network. We overhear the conversation about the customer, which we sort of, our understanding of the customer is expanded by it. We're sitting next to somebody in our workstation. We overhear a conversation that helps us understand how to work through a difficult situation within our, in our culture. That ambient environment, like it's really clear when we're working with somebody intentionally that we get that, but also those accidental moments, those overhearing moments are really important. And so I think about like, how do 
how do leaders create that sense of connection? What is the role of leadership in really bringing people to a place where they want to be together? And I think it has to do with really creating a sense of purpose, like giving people that bigger picture that they feel like they're connected to, making sure that they have an opportunity to get involved and feel like they have a voice, feel like they have some authorship in the future, giving people flexibility, but with guardrails. Like we don't want to just have autonomy with abandon, right? We want to help people know when to be in the office based on the ebb and flow of the project or when to be in the office based on the process of the team, when to be in the office based on their own energy levels and what energizes them. The other thing that's really interesting is that when leaders are more present and accessible, it tends to be very correlated with constructive, productive culture. So when leaders are just available to answer questions, when they're responsive, when they seem like they're accessible, they don't need to be 24-7 with, you know, old-fashioned beepers or something like that. But certainly when, when people sense that accessibility, those are all kinds of things that contribute to this sense of a culture where people want to be, a sense of a culture where they feel belonging, a sense of a culture where they feel like they want to plug in and be part of things. What do you think it is that most people get wrong or organizations get wrong when it comes to psychological safety? It's a really great question. I think they get wrong, first of all, understanding how critical it is. Like, like one of the things we can get right is elevating it through conversations like this, elevating it through an understanding of how it relates to people and to the business. I think they can also get wrong a lack of understanding of their role. Like I think sometimes leaders will say to me, oh, I don't want to ask too many questions. I don't want to be intrusive. I don't want to be invasive. TMI, right? I want to be so respectful for people. But I think we can really get it right checking in by asking questions, by attending to people. And people will let you know whether or not they want to share very much. People will give you cues about that. I think the other thing that we can get wrong is feeling like the solution always has to be individual. Like I've got to work with this person on this thing and that person with that thing and that person with that thing. And we can get it right by thinking about the overall culture. Like how does the culture provide a sense of clear direction that people can get on board with? How does the culture provide a clear sense of belonging and values that reinforce our respect for each other? How does the culture reinforce policies and practices so we can resolve conflict in appropriate ways? How does the culture reinforce risk-taking so that people feel like they can kind of put it forward, right? Take risks and contribute toward innovation. So those are some of the things they can get wrong, but on the other hand, some of the things they can get right as well. And that last one is really about thinking about the bigger picture, kind of the, the stew that we're all part of, as well as the individual people that we are within that bigger context. That's great. Well, to close our conversation today, can you think of a memorable moment in your career that really influenced the way that you think about happiness at work? What did it teach you? Yeah, this is such a good one. And those memorable moments are so important, right? Like they they are places that stick in our memories and they stick in our thinking about how we make sense of ourselves in the group. There was this amazing moment. We had this uh, team meeting and we had cupcakes for this team meeting from this super duper special bakery in town. And we had we had made the trip to this bakery for these silly cupcakes 
but they ended up being this artifact of our discussion. Like we were laughing, we were struggling with a tough customer, we were solving problems, we were working, we were all working so hard at this point in the life of the team. And we shared cupcakes together and we laughed together. And I will never forget one of the people on the team, Holly, said, this is a moment that we have to remember because not every team will function just like this all the time. Let's remember this moment together. And we had the presence of mind to take pictures of these crazy cupcakes and every now and then they come up in my memories. But it's like we had this cool artifact of cupcakes. We had this cool moment where we were working so hard and we were pushing ourselves and we were enjoying and respecting and appreciating each other so much. And the takeaway message for me is to just really appreciate all those moments, to be super present for those moments, because then we can bring that level of happiness, that joy, those behaviors, those values into the next thing. So it's all about, I think, presence and gratitude. Yeah, that's a great story. Do you have any resources you could recommend for our audience to learn more about the sociology of work, mental health in the workplace, or just psychological safety in general? Yeah, there's so much great stuff here. So on my website, tracybrower.com, I've got a section of collected articles on mental health and well-being. And each of those articles has links to third-party sources and academic studies and additional information. So that's one. There's a wonderful book I just finished called 4,000 Weeks. It's by Berkman. And the idea is we all have about 4,000 weeks, give or take, and how we spend that time is really important. So that's a really good one. And then there's a wonderful book called The Village Effect by Susan Pinker. And it talks about the criticality of our connections, our communities, the way that we interact together, which is fundamentally about sociology. So those are super great and they're super accessible, super readable. They're not like textbooks by any means. Not super academic. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. That's great. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for being on the show today. This conversation, just an excellent reminder of how we as humans affect work and how it affects us back. So I truly appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If any of our listeners want to connect with you out there, buy your books or read some of your articles, you mentioned your website, but how else can they get in touch with you? Yeah, so tracybrower.com is great or steelcase.com. Steelcase has amazing research. I'm on LinkedIn and all the other social media channels, but LinkedIn is Tracy Brower, PhD. My newest book is The Secrets to Happiness at Work, and it's available wherever books are sold, as they say. So you can find it really easily. My first book is called Bring Work to Life. So I'm just super interested in learning and people can feel free to reach out. We'd love to connect. We'd love to learn from everyone else in terms of where they are in their journey because we're all finding our own way. So super excited to reach out and connect when that's appropriate. Fantastic. Well, thanks again to Tracy and to all our listeners for joining us on the Employee Safety Podcast. We invite you to subscribe to future episodes at Alert Media's website or on your favorite podcast player. We'd also appreciate you giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Have a safe week, everyone. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information.
You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.